Love stories are everywhere. Go to any bookstore and you'll find shelves after shelves of romance novels. Go to the movie theater, I'm sure you can find a romantic comedy or drama to watch. TV shows, magazines, the internet. It's love, love, love. Love is in the air. Love is everywhere. But as we move through life, we realize that those stories that we watch or the stories that we read are just that, stories. My wife and I often reflect on marriage in comparison to what we see in the movies. And we look at each other and we say, marriage is nothing like you see in the movies, is it? Well, it sure isn't. And yet we're so drawn to the tabloids even to see stories of men and women in love with one another. We're drawn to cinematic performances, tales of gossip. Why? Why do we love love stories? Well, for good reason. It's because deep down we were made for love. Deep down, we were made to be satisfied by a love that could fill our hearts. The problem is we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're all on a quest for love, and yet we look around for things that won't satisfy us. All the things that we put our heart's desire on are simply little shadows, little pictures of the glimpses of true love. Well, where is this true love found? Well, Hosea shows us there's only one true love that can truly and finally satisfy us. Well, if you haven't already turned there, you can flip in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer, and we're in the midst of an eight-week series in this book. Today, we find ourselves in Hosea chapter 3. We'll be going through the remaining 12 chapters over the next six weeks. The late pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce, when remarking on Hosea chapter 3, once said that this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Well, he rightly understood that this chapter points to the greatest love story in the world. Now, the whole Bible is, in fact, one great Story. It's not a bunch of little stories all disconnected and, and brought together. It's one grand story. It's one overarching epic love story of God for his people. And Hosea, the prophet, his job was to preach this love story. And a prophet's job was to hear the voice of God and to pass that message on to the people. But there's a difference about this call. You've noticed it in the first two chapters. This is maybe the most stunning and startling of all the calls of the prophets. God says, Hosea, yes, you're going to preach a message. But more importantly, this is a message that you're going to live out. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go marry a whore, an unfaithful woman, and have children with her. Hosea must have thought, wait, 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 God, you, you want me to do what? This is a bit more involved than my usual prophecies. 
No, what God was telling him is, I know she's going to trample your heart. I know she's going to be unfaithful to you. I know she's going to hurt you. I know she's going to make a mockery of marriage, but I want you to go to her anyway. I want you to marry her and shower her with an undivided affection and love. Because Israel is unfaithful to me, I'm going to hold up a mirror to their face. Hosea's love for his wife, Gomer, would be a visual picture of God's love for Israel. Now, Gomer must have been shocked at this marriage proposal of Hosea. I mean, she must have thought, this, this guy has to be joking. Oh, he's, he's serious. Okay. Well, they, they get married. But there was no happily ever after, after that point. Gomer leaves her fairy tale life. She couldn't accept Hosea's selfless love. Maybe she's tired of caring for the three children. She stops showing up for dinner and bedtime. Maybe she's dragging her drunken self back to the house at dusk. Eventually, she just stops showing up at all. Well, Gomer thought the grass was greener over on the other side. She thought she could find her fulfillment in other lovers, and so she leaves. She pursues other men, and one man she settles with can't even provide for her. She doesn't even have the basic necessities to live. So Hosea hears about this somehow. He goes down to the, perhaps the town square where Gomer is living. She finds her current lover and gives him some necessities. Man, that man must have been stunned. I can imagine what he's thinking when Hosea is coming towards him. Maybe he's thinking Hosea is going to hit him. But Hosea says, no, 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 no. I'm not, not here to pick a fight. I'm not here to cause a scene. I love my wife. So here's, here's some food, here's some money, here's some basic necessities. I want to see her taken care of. Well, now we get to chapter 3. God's going to command Hosea again for a second time to go to Homer and go to Gomer. And this time it's a command to bring her back at whatever the cost. And here's our main point this morning, just one point. Jesus paid the price to bring you into the greatest love story in the world. Just one point, no subpoint, no subpoints of subpoints of subpoints, just one Main point, Jesus paid the price to bring you into the greatest love story in the world. We'll see that in these verses. Look at verse 1. When the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, and love cakes of raisins. Gomer comes to Hosea, or in, this, in fact, God first comes to Hosea and says, Gomer has sold herself into slavery. Go back into the red light district and buy her back. It doesn't say Gomer's name here, but there's little doubt that it's Gomer. The word adulteress implies a married woman. The charge to go again means this wasn't the first time. And most importantly, since this story was parallel with the story of God remaining faithful to his bride Israel, it's clear that God is asking Hosea to love Gomer. 
And this was a painful love. This wasn't easy for Hosea to do. Gomer had left him for other lovers, just like Israel had left God. They had turned to the other gods, and they loved cakes of raisins. Now, that statement right there has to be one of the most ridiculous statements in the Bible. They left God for raisin cakes. I mean, that's crazy talk. I mean, what's wrong with a little cake? I mean, if you're like me, you keep seeing food everywhere in the Bible. It's amazing how much the Bible talks about food. The Garden of Eden, you have fruit at the end. In Revelation, you have the banqueting feast, the table full with the best foods here. Cake. I mean, last night as I was preparing, Pastor Glenn suggested that I write a biblical theology of food. I don't know what would make him think that I'd be a good person to do that. But I think it's somebody has to do it. But why is raisin cake bad? What does that even mean? Well, the abrupt mention of raisin cake seems odd. And I think that's part of the point. Israel's love was oddly misplaced. These cakes were used for idol worship. They were associated with sexual immorality in the temples. And the thought was it would help invoke Baal to give you rain so you could have your crops and your farming would be successful, that you would have sustenance and all that you need. We see the contrast, not loving God is as crazy as loving raisin cakes. While Yahweh was loving the Israelites, what are they loving? And cake, false gods, idols. There may not be a crazier or sadder verse in the scriptures. But that's what sin is. Sin is crazy. Sin makes no sense. It promises immediate benefit, but it leads you to death. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about the absurdity of sin. Screwtape is a big-time leader in hell, and he has had lots of experience tempting Christians. Well, he writes a series of letters to Wormwood, his nephew, who is quite inexperienced and needs some help. And so there's a series of 31 letters in the book from Screwtape to Wormwood, discipling him on how to tempt Christians and get them to move away from God. Well, the young demon is really excited. He's excited about quickly dragging Christians to the most deplorable, to the most despicable sins. But Screwtape teaches him and says, that's not the way to go. The way to go is not to get the Christian from here all the way over here in one moment. It's not to get the Christian to do the most despicable things instantly. Instead, Screwtape says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Screwtape, in fact, in the book says, take earthly pleasures, take good things, and help get the Christians to take good things and to make them main things and so that they'll replace God with those things. It's a subtle act we almost don't even know we're doing. Now, the love of raising cakes and the worship of idols isn't a decision you make in a day. You don't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to have an affair on my spouse today. That's what I'm going to do. No, it's a more slippery slope. It's a slow, downward spiral of danger. You start walking in, and you don't even see the danger around you. And the things of this world are bait in the hands of Satan. 
to draw us in slowly and slowly and slowly. Then he goes in for the kill. Now, if you like to go fishing, you know something about bait. I'm actually a bit terrified to go fishing. Now, due to my physical disability, I'm no longer able to hold a fishing rod. But back when I could, I enjoyed the relaxing around the lake, the great scenery, the peace and quiet. But I desperately despised actually catching a fish. Why? Well, because when you catch a fish, you actually have to touch it. And fish are gooey and slimy and gross. And so when I went fishing, I'd actually pray that the fish would swim away. You know, be free, fish. Be free. But if you actually want to catch a fish, you have to have some good bait, right? So you put on a delicious insect, maybe a worm of some kind. You put it on the edge of the hook, and the fish swimming under the water sees the worm. And they think, oh, glory. And they swim up to it and bite it. It's their lucky day. And for about a millisecond, for a short millisecond, it's pure bliss, right? I got the worm. But then pretty quickly the hook hooks them. And death is on its way. That's what sin is. The momentary pleasure, if there is some, turns to death. This is where Gomer finds herself. One bad decision after another bad decision, one sin after another sin, and now she's enslaved. Doesn't have basic necessities. Those raisin cakes look good. You think, what's one raisin cake? What's one night out drinking with my friends? There's no harm in that. What's one personal conversation with someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse? What's a few minutes of mindless clicking on the internet? But these things can lead to death, and they won't make you happy. This is why after engaging in immoral activity, you're sick to your stomach the next day. I've never met a Christian who comes up to me and says, boy, do I feel great that I spent two hours looking at pornography last night. No one has ever said that. But when people come to me in confession, they feel shameful and dirty and depressed and discouraged because sin lies to you. It's bait. It lies. It's going to kill you. It doesn't satisfy. It's a raisin cake that's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It doesn't fill your heart. Now, when we look to the world, we have an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. It's easy as we look at these verses to cast the first stone at Gomer or Israel. But friends, this is a mirror of our own hearts. What are the raisin cakes that you're chasing? It's easy to see the silly pursuits of others, but what are the things you're chasing to fill your soul? Maybe underneath your overworking is a craving for approval from your boss. Or you're in school and you join in the gossip with your friends. Why do you do that? Is it to fit in with the other kids in school? Is it so that you'll be accepted? Or perhaps you're worshiping your reputation. You're convinced that everybody around you, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends, are always talking about you. You can't enjoy friendships because you're evaluating every conversation. 
You lose your cool as a parent when your kids embarrass you. Approval, control, comfort, reputation. None of these things will ultimately satisfy you. It's a raisin cake. But verse 1 tells us that even as Israel was cheating on God, he still loved them. I mean, this is an unbelievable reality. I mean, this love is pictured so dramatically down in verse 2. Hosea goes down to the marketplace. He listens to God. He goes to the marketplace and he says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a litek of barley. And that single word, bought, we see how far Gomer had fallen. We don't know her exact debts. She was a slave of some kind, maybe a prostitute owned by someone. Maybe she owned a debt to her current boyfriend. But we do know back in these days, in the 8th century BC, Israel had adopted many pagan practices from the time. And one of those practices was auctioning off slaves. And so what they would do is they'd strip the slaves of their clothing. They'd line them up, up front, and then they would bid. People there in the audience would, would bid on the slaves to purchase them. And so Gomer, probably staring at the ground in shame as the bidding commenced. Five shekels of silver, six, nine, ten shekels, eleven, twelve. Then finally someone shouts out, fifteen shekels. And then Hosea speaks up. I'll take your 15 and I'll add a homer and a litek of barley. And in that moment, Gomer hears the voice of her husband. She must have been utterly surprised, to say the least. And the gavel sounds sold to Hosea. He buys her out of slavery for a total of what would have been about 30 shekels, which was the price of a slave. Gomer had hit rock bottom. But Hosea didn't purchase her to punish her, but he paid the price to love her. I know some of our community groups discussed the question of adultery this week. Does this mean that if our spouse commits adultery, we have to take them back? Well, the answer is no, but. Let me explain. The Bible teaches that divorce is ethical in cases of sexual immorality, Matthew 5.32, or abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. And physical abuse makes a home unsafe and could constitute abandonment of the marriage vows. So there are provisions God makes to care for and to love the victim. And at the same time, Malachi chapter 2 says that God hates divorce. And as we look through the scriptures, it appears that the union of husband and wife is not something that we can break. It's important to remember that Hosea, that this book was not a manual for divorce and remarriage. The main point was picturing the love of God for Israel. There are times when divorce is allowable and may be deemed best in consultation with the elders. And at the same time, we would plead with you 
to talk about these things in community before rushing to any decisions. We would love to see marriages reconciled and restored when adultery happens. In fact, can you imagine the glory that God would get if marriages that are broken because of sin would come back together and be restored and reconciled? Oh, what glory that would bring our Lord and Savior. And at the same time, we want to protect our members from abuse and harm. Abuse is never okay. We want to care for those hurting. And so to rescue someone under abuse and to rescue someone who's repeatedly been cheated on and hurt also brings glory to God. Well, friend, if that question, if this question is plaguing you, if you've suffered being the victim of adultery or abuse, reach out to a fellow member in this church. Reach out to one of the elders. Come talk to us. If you're suffering because of these things, I want you to know as your pastor, this breaks my heart. As I worked through this text this week and as I prayed for you, I'm heartbroken for you. I'm incredibly sad for you. Hosea's heart must have been hurting and broken when Gomer repeatedly cheated on him. And I know if you've been cheated on, just how broken and how painful that must be. Friends, we want to help. Please get help. If this is you, we welcome you with open arms. You need to know that if you've been beaten, if you've been abused, if you've been cheated on, you need to know that despite what you've done, it's not your fault. It's never your fault to have those things happen to you. So friend, if you come to us, we will not condemn you. We will open our arms to you because we want to care for you. We want to hold you and comfort you and encourage you and to point you to Jesus and to get you help. Because we love you and God loves you. We want to be there for you. So please bring it into the light if this is you. God can heal your heart, but you've got to first get it into the light. Well, in this particular story, at the very command of God, Hosea purchases his adulterous wife. He brings her back. And we don't know what he did in that moment, but he didn't treat her like a slave. He covers her nakedness and he leads her back home, I'm assuming. I mean, what is she thinking in that moment? And maybe she's wondering, how could this man love me? After all that I've done, how could he love me and purchase me and cover up my shame? Well, verse 3, so tenderly Hosea says to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is a gentle and a tender love. I don't want you to sleep with other men. I want you to be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. And he seems to say that they also won't sleep together for a time. That'll picture something else about God and Israel we'll see in a moment. We don't know what happens after this, though. Right here at the end of chapter 3, we don't see Hosea and Gomer's interaction anymore. The last... 12, 11, 12 chapters of Hosea. It lead, leaves this story, continues the metaphor. 
but we don't know what happens. Is Gomer transformed? Do they ride off into the sunset after this point? Do they live happily ever after? And we never find out. It's like one of those artsy movies. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's a movie that, that ends with no grand resolution, no big happy ending that makes you feel good. It leaves you perplexed, thinking. You're left wondering what her response will be. But you also leave in awe of Hosea's pursuit of her. And that's the point. All of this was meant to picture God's love for his people. And the rest of the chapter shows us the meaning for Israel and for us. Verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Well, this time in Israel was a disciplinary period where they were deprived of certain things. The absence of kings and princes meant the infrastructure and leadership of the nation would be eliminated. The pillars would have been part of their idolatrous worship. The ephod was a garment worn by a priest. It contained a pocket with, with a dice that would reveal answers to questions, yes or no, from God. The sacrificial system and ephod were orthodox. The other things were pagan. We get here, again, a picture of Israel's syncretism. And now God says, I'm going to take the good and I'm going to take the bad. And I'm going to do away with both as a matter of discipline. Well, God remained with his bride, though, but certain privileges were taken away for a time. This was mirrored by Hosea and Gomer's abstinence with each other. And this is prophetic. There's going to be a time period when Israel is cold towards God. But eventually, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This verse tells us in some way Israel will turn to God in the future. It's debated as to what that extent will be. Some say there'll be a great turning of the literal political state of Israel to the Lord at the end times. Others say that the church is now the true Israel of God and that the promises to Israel are now given to the church. The church is the true Israel. It's not that Israel was ever abandoned, but that the church has been grafted into Israel. True Israel are those who come by faith, Jews and Gentiles. Well, even if you accept this second view, there are, there's room to believe that in the last days there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit on Gentiles and on Israel, a kind of spiritual restoration. Either way, God does not leave his bride. In chapter 2, when Israel came to God not out of love for God, but because things were better with God, we saw that the motive was selfish. In these latter days, she'll come in fear and love. And Hosea doesn't tell us exactly how that'll happen or when that will happen. But regardless of the precise fulfillment of this prophecy and others like it, here's the point. God will always fulfill his promises. 100%. The point is clear. There's a time coming when the condition of verse 4 will end and God's people will have David as their king. Of course, David is dead, 
So this is pointing to a descendant. And this is important because the northern kingdom didn't follow the Davidic line of the kings of Judah. But there would be a change of heart. The designation David applies to the messianic king in several places in the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 30, Ezekiel chapter 34. In Matthew 9, when Jesus is asked why his disciples don't fast, he said, do friends of the bridegroom fast when they're with the bridegroom? Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the bridegroom. This is what Hosea is pointing to. Hosea is pointing to Jesus, the Davidic king who rules and reigns today and will one day come back for his people. God's people will one day give allegiance to the Lord. Well, how did God provide a way for us to be reconciled to himself so this could take place? Hosea went into the marketplace to image God himself going into the marketplace. How did that happen? Well, we've been singing it all morning. We've been reading it in the scriptures. It was on the cross. It was on the cross. It was there that we were redeemed. To redeem means to purchase out of the market. And as an adulteress, Gomer deserved death in those days. That was the punishment for an adulteress. Hosea could have rightly had her killed. Hosea could have rightly, in those days, purchased her and had her killed. But instead, he paid the price to redeem her. Well, as sinners, in the same way, you and I deserve death. But Christ stepped into the marketplace of our sin and bought us out of our bondage by his death. Jesus paid the price to bring you into the greatest love story in the world. I mean, we were slaves. We were standing there. We had nothing to bring. We were at the block, the auction block of our sin, and the world is bidding for our attention, fame and success and lust and power and careers. And just when it seemed like all was lost, Jesus goes into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his life. And that bidding price wasn't simply 30 shekels of silver. The cost he paid was his very life. He paid with his blood. He died so that he could clothe us in robes of righteousness. And like Hosea told Gomer, God tells us now that we've been purchased, we're to live fully and totally for him. And that feeling Gomer must have felt when Hosea purchased her is the same feeling we need to have when we reflect on God's redeeming love for us. We need to remember the price he paid, that you were without hope, a slave to the world, exposed. And while we, you were yet a sinner, you weren't good. You had nothing that God could look down upon and say, wow, that person earned it. None of us were good enough. Even our good deeds, the scriptures say, are like filthy rags. No, we didn't do anything good to earn God's love. The text that Luke read earlier is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Friends, let that sink into your heart. And when you remember that, when you let that sink into the deepest recesses of your heart, you'll be able to trust him in your trials. When you remember the price that Christ paid on the cross, you won't worry, you won't carry your anxiety upon your own shoulders. When you reflect on Jesus and the price he paid, you won't feel the guilt for your past. When you look to Jesus and you realize that he paid it all, and when you look to him to be your soul's satisfaction, you'll be able to enjoy every circumstance in life. So whether you have a job or you don't, whether you have a nice boss or you don't, whether your bank account is full or empty, whether you have a hard family situation or a good one, whether you're lonely or not, rich or poor, healthy, struggling with sickness, even whether you're married or single, I love how we had a single ladies gathering last Friday. I know many of you women went to that gathering. I want to tell you that it's great to be single. It's also great to be married. It's great to want to be married. Did you know that desiring marriage doesn't necessarily make you discontent? I mean, God created marriage. It's a good gift. If you're single, I want to give you permission. You can desire to be married. That's okay. I got to save the date this past week from Andre and Jamel, two members in our church. September 8th, 2018. I was so excited. It brought a great smile to my face. I hope we do lots of weddings at Redeemer. But here's the thing you need to know if you're single and if you're married. Marriage is good, but it's not ultimate. Marriage will overpromise and it will underdeliver if that's what you're trying to fill your heart with. Only Christ can fill your heart. He's the only spouse who can satisfy your deepest needs and longings. Only when we know Christ's spousal love will we be the spouses we're supposed to be. If you're married and you don't know Jesus' spousal love, you're going to be a lousy spouse. Because you're going to insist that your spouse meet all your emotional, spiritual, and physical needs in every way. But that's way too much of a weight for any human being to bear. Love Jesus or you'll overlove something else. Love Jesus or you'll give too much affection, too much love to a lesser love. It'll be about as nourishing as a raisin cake. Joy for the moment. It'll be a bait that leads to death. Now, friends, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. He entered that marketplace to buy you out of slavery. He's the true and better Hosea. He's the bridegroom who will follow through on all of his promises. He never lets you down. He never fails you. He never lies to you. He never turns his back from you. He never stops pursuing you. He never stops caring for you. He never stops providing for you. And we know this because God has been faithful in the past. God's faithfulness in the past is both a model and a promise of his faithfulness in the future. Because Christ died on the cross and because he rose from the dead, we know that everything he says will come true. We have no doubt 
that he will be with us, that he will come back for us, that he will preserve us and comfort us. Christ died in the past. How will he not be with us in the future? Oh, friends, this is glorious news. And if you're here, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this news, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're not yet a believer. Oh, friends, we are so glad that you're here. We pray that you would keep coming and join us. You are most welcome. There may be at times where you feel deserted, that you feel that God has abandoned you. Maybe you're even asking in your own heart, where is God? Well, the answer is God isn't lost. God's not hidden. God was never lost. You are. I was. We all were lost. We all are lost without God. But God is pursuing you and God loves you. And it's a grace that you're here this morning. If you don't yet know Jesus and you're here, maybe a friend invited you. Maybe you saw a sign. Maybe some other reason God brought you here. But I want you to know if you're here, you don't yet know Jesus, and you're sitting here in a sermon on Hosea, it's because God loves you. It's because he extends grace to you. It's grace that you're hearing this message, that God shows us in Hosea that we've all rejected God. We've all turned from him. We're all the adulterous wife, even the best of us. Pastors, elders, members, we're all sinners. And by using the illustration of adultery, God wants us to feel the weight of our sin. He wants us to feel the pain of idolatry, the pain of unfaithfulness. And the bad news is there's nothing we can do to erase that unfaithfulness, to erase our sin. We can't obey perfectly. It's impossible. But thankfully, God doesn't love you for what you do but because of what Jesus did. That's the good news. If you come to God in repentance and faith, he will save you into a relationship with him. And this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because it points so clearly to the greatest love story, which is really not just a story in the Bible. It's really the story of the Bible. It's what everything points to. It's what everything is about. A God who saves his people for his own glory. And the story's better than the TV. The story's better than what the movies have to offer. It's better than the books and better than the magazines, better than anything you can find in this world. And Jesus paid the price to bring you into the greatest love story in the world. Friends, go to him today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your love is especially sweet this morning. Many of us are tired. Some of us are anxious or even depressed. Our marriage is failing. Our singleness is painful. Our boss is overbearing. Our classmates are bullying. Our parents demanding. Our children disrespectful. Our friendships confusing. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to not look to these relationships to fill our hearts. Help us to look to you alone. For it's only then we'll be able to be the person and the father and the mother and the husband and the wife and the child and the employee and the friend that we were made to be. Lord, help us. Let us enjoy your love. Let us not look for it in other places. Let us come to you. Oh, Father, satisfy our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.